With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of June 15th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll talk about the NBA Finals and how Stephen Curry and the Warriors came back to take a 3-2 series lead over LeBron James in a collection of worn-out husks wearing Cavaliers jerseys. Grantland's Katie Baker will also join us to discuss hockey's Stanley Cup Finals, which also stand at three games to two with the Chicago Blackhawks holding that slim lead over the Tampa Bay Lightning. And David Epstein of ProPublica will tell us about his investigation into legendary American runner and coach Alberto Salazar, who stands accused of pressuring his athletes into taking performance-enhancing drugs. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and whose performance will be compromised today because we're recording the show on turf rather than his preferred natural grass. And I don't have my albuterol. I need my albuterol and my Celebrex. We'll get you a therapeutic use exemption in time for next week's episode. Joining us in New York, where he's fresh off appearances on Bill Maher and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, it's Mike Pesca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca, and a guest panelist on this morning's episode of The View, which he is recording <laughs> simultaneously with this podcast. Good morning, Mike. Hardest working man in that studio. Whoopi, I have to disagree. Hold on, guys. You know, I just think ISIS needs to be confronted. Yeah, hi, it's Mike. How you doing? Good. Um, we will... Is Whoopi uh, still on the view? <laughs> Let's say yes. <laughs> I think that's Mike's Helps nickname. The joke. I think that's Mike's nickname for Elizabeth Hasselbeck. <laughs> yeah. If she's still on the show, in fact. Um, no, I'm pretty sure Elizabeth Hasselbeck's not on the show, <laughs> right? Because they got uh, Jenny McCarthy to replace her. The View audience is very confused by <laughs> this discussion right now. Like the Astros, The View is just calling up top <laughs> prospects. <laughs> this will be a good test of the Venn diagram of View and Hang Up and Listen <laughs> listeners. Uh, topics. Uh, in our uh, bonus segment for Slate Plus members and for uh, View watchers this week, 
Uh, we'll talk about the first week and change of the Women's World Cup, what we've seen out of the U.S. women so far, and what's been happening in the rest of the tournament. To hear this bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and various other Slate shows and ABC daytime programs, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. You can get a free two-week trial as well if you go to that same URL, slate.com slash hangupplus. On Sunday in Oakland, the Golden State Warriors got 37 points from Stephen Curry, including seven threes, most of those of the, oh my God, how did he possibly make that variety? Um, they beat the Cleveland Cavaliers 104-91 to uh, and took a 3-2 to lead in the NBA Finals. LeBron James had 40 points, 14 rebounds, and 11 assists, scoring or assisting on 70 of the Cavs' 91 points. He's now averaging 36.6 points, 12.4 rebounds, and 8.8 assists in the finals. But he'll just have to do more if Cleveland is going to come back and win the series. We demand more, LeBron James. Maybe the series can still get better, Mike. Uh, But so far, this has been as close as real life can get to a perfect basketball series, at least in a dramatic sense, with the season-ending injuries to Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving making the Cavaliers worse but more interesting. Mm. Agree? What are your thoughts so far? Yeah, and we're going to, we saw all manner of games. Uh, I wasn't on last week's show, but you talked about amazing games that were extremely exciting, though not well played. And then in game five, I think we saw a game that was extremely well played. Golden State was on its game. Cavaliers, LeBron James mainly, were doing everything they can. The final score wasn't that close because Golden State just went on a, I can't miss a three-point shot run, which was pretty good. And I don't know if it'll go down as one of the great series ever, but I really, really want a game seven. And I want LeBron James to win MVP, even if the Cavs lose, maybe even because they lose. What do you think, Sherry Shepard? <laughs> <laughs> you sure she's on the show? I'm, just sh- I'm that? sure that she's not on the show. Okay. Uh, Stefan. Whoopi is on The View, though. I did look you that checked? up. checked? <laughs> yes. Who else while we're uh, here? Yeah, well, you know, it's Whoopi, it's uh, that gal it's Rosie, that it's Nicole Wallace, and it's Raven Simone. Oh, really? Yeah, she's so uh, she's so Simone. Uh, she's so I Simone. I can't really think of how to finish Simone. that. She's so something. She's so Simone. Mm-hmm. She's so Olivia from the Cosby Show. Stefan, what do you think? Ah, uh, you know, my my jaw was on the floor last night, like everyone else's, so I can't really talk. LeBron James. I mean, this is insane. He's played 228 out of 250 minutes. I mean, this is not human. If if your like awe and sympathy meters aren't in the red zone right now, then you are just cold, heart of stone, or you're Skip Bayless. Watching LeBron go like he's gone is entertaining in a sort of testing the outer limits of the human condition kind of way. But I think it's getting kind of ridiculous. There's a point where watching LeBron feels a little bit sadistic at this point. (laughs) Come on. You're waiting to see what possibly could go wrong next. I mean, he ran into a friggin' camera and had a scar on his head that looked like he had a lobotomy. Um you know, playoff basketball. And now only one day playoff, off. Playoff headwind. One one day off between game uh, five and six. You know, we complain about the spacing in the NBA playoffs, but now it just feels cruel. Like now is when we need more rest so that we can really see a quality basketball game and not LeBron James, you know, on an IV on the sidelines. I would quibble with some of your adjectival use there. <laughs> Sadistic seems a, li- a little much. 
But it does, you know, raise the question of they had what, like a nine, eight, ten day day layoff, day layoff between yeah. the conference finals and the finals. Hopefully, they can figure out how to inject some of those spaces into the series rather than between the series. That would have been helpful for LeBron and the Cavs. But this is kind of a one-off experience. Um, when someone, the, when two teams are playing one against five? Yeah. Yeah. The, the crazy thing is that LeBron managed to drag this team into the finals. That's kind of beyond anyone's expectations. Um, but... The reason that I think the series has been perfect, at least for me, is that it accommodates all of my rooting interests. I feel like Stephen Curry is the most fun player to watch in this or any sport. And the Game 5 illustrated that better than any other game in the finals, that he just kept doing things that were gasp-inducing. Like, you couldn't believe that he took the shot, and then you couldn't believe that it went in. And his play is awe-inspiring in a way that LeBron's just will never be due to Curry's stature and his, you know, dribbling skills and shooting skills. It's just a different kind of awe and I think more fun to watch. It's more fun to watch than LeBron backing down Andre Iguodala and shooting a little hook shot. It's like impressive, but not awe-inspiring. But I also root for LeBron, as listeners of the show will know, in the larger narrative sense. And so I want the Warriors to kind of get this. This just seems like their year. They were the best regular season team. I want them to get the championship that I feel like they deserve, but I also want people to appreciate and LeBron James as the self-proclaimed now greatest player in the world. Um, and I feel like that has thus far been accomplished. He is kind of above criticism at this point, except for you know the kinds of people who write articles by cutting out letters from magazines and like pasting them onto eight and a half by eleven paper. I think you cannot possibly criticize this guy at this point. Um, but yeah, as Mike said, all, all that we need now is a game seven with LeBron scoring 50 and the Warriors winning on a last second Curry three from half court. <laughs> Those will be good. Those people are so insane. They actually use seven and a half by 13 paper <laughs> just, and they cut it themselves. Um, I don't think I love Curry. I love watching him play. Uh, the strengths of his game are inherently more thrilling. I love the three-point shot. And he does – he kind of has the ball on the string, but on the other hand, his dribbling does – He, I think he dribbles further away from his body than anyone I've ever seen. Like he'll kind of put the ball on the floor and then run to the ball. I don't know. It's – it is awe-inspiring. I think LeBron's game has not only nothing to apologize for, the other aspects of it. I mean, he delivered a no-look behind-the-back pass to Tristan Thompson on a bounce that Thompson didn't know what to do with, but it was the greatest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. And his defense and his rebounding where he just said, all right, well, Pence, before the game starts, let's pencil him in for the 10 rebounds and let's go for there. Uh, you know, he's going to, I think... He's quite likely he'll set that triple-double mark, and his triple-doubles are, you know, not the sort of things that are in themselves accomplishment because they are statistically, you know, he nudges above 10 here or 10 there. He absolutely needs every one of those to get his team playing. And I think that, you know, there's something about the coaching, though. I've been thinking about this series, and I, I talked about this on the gist a little bit. I do think that... 
coaches in the NBA, because there's a seven-game series, they are loath to make in-game adjustments. I find that everyone says, let's play our game, and then if they lose that game, they'll come out with an adjustment for the next game. So that's almost the strength of just the one-and-done plus the excitement of it. But you do see Steve Kerr making adjustments. Okay, the Cavs are going to slow us down. Here's what we do about that. And I don't know that I've seen Blatt making adjustments. I think that the one big adjustment, the change of pace, was thrust upon them and it surprised the Warriors, but the seventh seven game series allows them to counter move. And because of that, I don't know if the Cavs even do have a chance. Well, the Cavs were dictating the series for the first three games, both because simply they had the two one lead, but also their big guys were dominating on the offensive boards and the pace that they were playing totally through the Warriors off their game. So I think you could argue, Mike, um, that Blatt won the coaching matchup for the first three games, and Kerr has clearly won it the last two. And the thing that I've found so kind of lovely about what the Warriors did was the fact that Kerr gave credit to his assistant, the 28-year-old Nick Uren, for suggesting putting on Iguodala over Bogut. To start for the first time all year. In game four. Um, and it's just like a very like nice thing to do for a guy, which, you know, that being given credit for that move will boost this guy's career in a way that I'm sure will be real and calculable. And that it's just not something that a head coach typically does. And Kerr has this kind of ah shucks, like not taking this too seriously demeanor that I think is like reflected in his actions in that specific way. And I just thought that was very nice and cool. And there's just not as many moves or counter moves that Blatt can make because right. he just doesn't have players. Right. So he made the counter move of benching Timofey Mozgov. That's a counter move? <laughs> the guy gets 28 points. I got to bench him and he gets zero. Aha. No, I mean, well, he I'm had to do something, though. But they lost <laughs> the game. He 28 points the and they lost. 28 points. Mike, and they lost. It's, not, it's actually not laughable. Like, the yeah. guy who was supposed to guard Mozgov in that game was Andre Iguodala, who just went insane because right. he was being guarded by Timofey Mozgov. And the Cavs lost by 21. They got blown out. And then in the next game with that move, the Cavs didn't get blown out. It was a much closer, more tightly well, that, But that was game. dictated by what Steve Kerr did by moving to a small lineup and benching Andrew Bogut. Didn't play at all, right? Yeah. So you think that you think that the Cavs should have just stuck with Mozgov, is what you're saying? Well, I think that there was a huge necessity to get someone besides LeBron James going, anything, anyway. And you saw them, you know, uh, usually... It's we always we always say, oh, it's not a battle between two players, but my God, is this series a battle between LeBron and whoever the best player is on the Warriors? And it's usually Steph. And, and you know, in the last few minutes of the third, like really the last minute and a half of the third period, LeBron sits down, boom, the Warriors go on this huge run. Then LeBron comes in, boom, the uh, Cavs make up the difference. I mean, I've never seen, it's not that it generally correlates or largely correlates. This team is entirely a LeBron team, and you have to do, I, I think they have to do something to get something out of uh, the non-LeBron portions of the game. Also, wh- what about Della Vidova, stymieing Curry? Was that just uh, an illusion? How did, the, uh, how did he get de-stymied in later games? 
Well, I think that you can look at the defense that Delvedov was playing in game game five and come away with the conclusion that it wasn't objectively different than the defense he was playing in the other games and that the difference was Curry um, and the fact that he was making the kinds of shots that only he can make. And so perhaps Delvedova was getting too much credit earlier in the series and too little credit in game five um, because people were just focused on you know, the outcome of the shot not going through. There's also the question of fatigue. Uh, Tom Haberstraw of ESPN wrote a terrific piece uh, this week. He, he sat with a group of uh, sports scientists, trainers, watching the, the last couple games or watching one of the recent games, and they were all dumbfounded by the workload that these guys are going through. Some of these, some of the people that he was with were, uh, I think, English, right, and and worked in British soccer. And they were sort of astounded that an athlete of LeBron James's caliber could be called upon to play 50 minutes, 40 to 50 minutes of games, three nights or four nights in a week. They felt it was like scientifically, you know, crazy. Like they wish there were heart monitors and other monitors hooked up to LeBron during these performances. And we've seen that, you know, after every game, we're getting these silly-ish reports saying that, you know, dehydration, IV fluids. My favorite was Stephen Curry after game five. ESPN reported that after his news conference, he had to go to the locker room where he received drinking fluids to relieve the dehydration. Drinking I thought, fluids. I read the Haberstroh piece and I totally buy the fact that this is superhuman, what yeah. they're doing, but I felt like it was a little bit of an exaggeration. Like in the World Cup... Guys will play three games flying between cities and they run for 90 minutes without stopping in these games. Like, is what LeBron James is doing so, like, they made it seem like this is something that no athlete has ever done, like, in the history of sports. I mean, people run ultra marathons and I guess it's the combination of his body type. Right. And the fact that he... And it's the physical contact, too. The, the fact pounding. that he's getting fouled every time right. down the floor. It's the physical right. pounding, too. And in the World Cup, they do have longer rest between games. I mean, yeah, they run longer if you play the full game, but there's typically five or six days between games. Last last thought here. Um, I mentioned that David Blatt doesn't really have any counter moves because <laughs> he doesn't have any players. I thought there was an interesting comment uh, that I saw in the Deadspin comments. Um, somebody's idea was that you leave LeBron in the game. Um, you don't sit him out to get him rest. But what you do is you put in like the 11th and 12th guys Kendrick like Perkins, Perkins and Joe Harris and just have them either foul Iguodala or if they take Iguodala out of the game, have them foul just somebody who's even like a like Draymond Green who's like not the greatest free throw shooter and just have them do that repeatedly just to get LeBron like slow down the game, get LeBron like an extra 10 minutes of real time rest. That to me seems like a plausible idea. Just like why the leave, hack why strategy. Why leave him in the game? Wouldn't what? it be better to be sitting on the bench during that? No, because then he can be um, in the game on offense. On offense, okay. We'll see if David Blatt goes to that move. It's a noted reader of Deadspin comments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hopefully Nick, you, you waited. Ran. You waited through all the comments about his penis to get to that good defensive strategy. Well, hopefully Nick Uren of the, uh, the Warriors, the 28-year-old, is reading the Deadspin comments and telling That's Steve right. Kerr that this is going to happen. I believe that. A strategy by balls deep. <laughs> Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Here's a word from one of our sister podcasts. Hi. 
Hi, I'm James Ledbetter. I'm the host of Inc. Uncensored, our podcast about business, startups, entrepreneurships, cool companies, and lots of other things. This week, we are going to be talking with Christine Ligorio Chafkin about Silicon Valley's cult of disruption is coming to your dinner table. Diana Ransom on monetizing customer loyalty. And Will Yakowitz with vaporization company that landed $47 million from the likes of Fidelity. It was $46 million just a minute ago. All right. Uh, please yeah. listen to Inc. Uncensored, the best program on the Panoply network of otherwise very good podcasts. You can listen to them all at iTunes.com slash Panoply. On Saturday night in Florida, the Chicago Blackhawks beat the Tampa Bay Lightning 2-1 to to take a 3-2 lead in the Stanley Cup Finals. All five games thus far have been decided by a single goal. And if the Blackhawks score one more goal than Tampa on Monday evening, then Chicago will win the Stanley Cup at home for the first time since 1938. Joining us from Chicago is Katie Baker, who's covering the series for Grantland. Hello, Katie. Hi, guys. How are you? Good. Um... I wanted to start by asking you about something you said in your story about Game 4. Um, you compared Brandon Saad's game-winning power move to a LeBron James drive through the lane, which I think would be a better analogy if all of Saad's teammates had spent the whole series standing to the side and holding on to the boards because they were just learning how to skate. Yeah, and if Tampa Bay had just completely neglected to even try to cover them, knowing that they don't need to. But that's not, that's not how the series has gone. The two series side-by-side, side, watching them, uh, the NBA and the NHL, it's made me kind of think about the difference between playoff basketball and playoff hockey, which is that in the NBA, more than I think any of the other major uh, sports leagues, you have the sense at the end of the playoffs that the outcome is correct and just and that the winner is the best team, the best team is the winner. But this series, um, Blackhawks-Lightning, it feels more like a series of random events. And you could argue that game five, the outcome was decided by like which horrible goal uh, tending gaffe led to a goal and which one led to a lightning player getting impaled on the uh, the side of the net. So do you like as a as a hockey partisan, do you come to that same conclusion that the series has been well played and exciting and tense? You can't argue that it hasn't been fun to watch. But um, the two teams are playing equally well, and maybe at the end we won't know who the better team is. Yeah, I think it's kind of, if you're going to compare it to basketball, I think it's kind of akin to a game that ends with, you know, like a Patrick Ewing finger roll that either rolls around the rim and goes in or it goes out, and all of a sudden that that will drive this kind of lasting narrative, um, even though it's kind of just, you know, luck of physics. And hockey is really just an, an endless series of those events. And I think sometimes hockey fans get a little mad at writers because we start to sound sort of nihilistic after a while, like nothing matters, it's just a bounce, um, it's just luck. You know, and, you know, and sometimes the, there's definitely a better team, and, and you can tell that. But I think in this series, like you said, you know, the difference in the last game was that both goalies made really weird mistakes by venturing out of the net. Both times a player had the puck on his stick and pretty much had wide open real estate. And one guy, you know, I don't know what happened to him, whether he separated his shoulder or is dealing with a concussion now. And the other guy scored the goal and put Chicago ahead one nothing. So 
there really is a lot of it, especially in a series like this. You know, it's hard to know whether it'll go to seven games, but it does seem like it should go to seven games just with how even it's been. It's just one in-and-out basket after another, basically. Now, we came into the series talking about how great the Lightning were, how young, how fast, how the first line is so dominant and made the Rangers look sort of slow and old in the uh, in the conference finals. But we really haven't seen evidence of that. Is it, is it is it more what the Blackhawks are doing to control the game? Or is it something to do with the Lightning forwards just not performing as well as they did in the previous series? I think it's a combination of Chicago's top defensemen really cracking down on them, even Chicago's top forwards cracking down on them. And I actually think the Tampa and Chicago top forwards have, in a way, sort of neutralized each other. And then also kind of the ongoing thing with hockey in the playoffs is, is the hidden injuries that we're all going to find out about either tonight or on Wednesday night as soon as the series ends. I remember in, in 2013, it was revealed after the Bruins lost that Patrice Bergeron had been playing with like a broken rib and a separated shoulder. So, you know, it starts to kind of put some of the performance into light a little bit. Tyler Johnson in particular, I think the, the sort of party line on him is that he must have some kind of hand situation because he hasn't been taking face-offs for a while. And, you know, they'll never say that. And he says he's fine and there's nothing wrong, but he clearly isn't the dynamic player he was in the Rangers series when he almost single-handedly won some of the games. Yeah, I demand at least a description of upper body or lower body injury, which is usually good. The NHL is usually good for providing that. Now the coaches are just lying about which, uh, well... I like how how Katie downgraded it from injury to situation, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was a few years ago when a coach wouldn't even say upper or lower body. He just said someone had a body injury. (laughs) He had a body. I kind of like that. You you could say he has like an existential injury, but... Yeah, it wasn't his aura... It wasn't his chakras. There were no chakra misalignments. But uh, so Ben Bishop hasn't been able to play every game. Backup goalie uh, Vasilevsky has. He seems just as good. In fact, I don't even know. I guess I guess you'd have to say the defenses have been amazing because we have seen a few soft goals and then we have seen a few miscues and we've seen good saves, but they seem more like the saves of goalies being in position. That that's a little underrated. I haven't seen the you know hugely flashy goalie standing on their head. The guy's a brick wall sort of thing. Yet these are good offenses. They've been low scoring games. I guess you'd have to by process of elimination say the defenses are playing well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because you can kind of look at all three goalies that have played this series for the two teams, and to me it's kind of a toss-up. You know, none of them inspire too much fear unless you're part of the fan base for which they're playing, and then you might be a little nervous. Um, they've all kind of had their stinkers throughout the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as someone who, who closely follows the Rangers for most of the season, I've kind of been thinking after the last series whether – you really need, you know, people say, oh, a hot goalie can win you the playoffs. And while that's true, I think a hot goalie doesn't necessarily force their team to, to reckon with their pluses and minuses as much. And I think you see that with the Rangers. You know, you go into a big game and people say, well, Hank, Hank will bail them out. I don't think anyone's really saying that about Corey Crawford. So it, it does put the pressure on the skaters. But each team has, you know, Chicago's got a sort of a thin defensive core. They kind of play their top three or four guys, huge minutes, and when when the other guys are on the ice, it's quite an adventure. But, you know, they do have Duncan Keith, who I think will most likely win the, 
the MVP, you know, especially if Chicago wins. And then Tampa's got Victor Hedman, who's really been sort of the breakout star of the series, and both on the ice and off the ice, you know, obviously reporters are very unbiased in everything they do, but everyone kind of is obsessed with Victor Hedman right now. Um, he's, he's the one that uh, ran into Ben Bishop, causing the closest thing that hockey has seen to a butt fumble. I would say, yeah, <laughs> I would say Ben Bishop is sort of the one that ran into him. But it's funny you bring up the butt fumble because after the game it was a little strange. Bishop blamed crowd noise for being part of the issue and said that he had called Hedman off, but Hedman couldn't hear him, and mm. that you know that's sort of a the quarterback's go-to excuse although usually you, you say it when you're visiting a loud opposing building. So, and it also wasn't that loud. So <laughs> I thought that was kind of an interesting remark for him to make. Katie, do we have any further insight into why Ben Bishop came out of uh, the earlier game in the series? Body injury. <laughs> yeah. It, might, it sounded like a lower colon injury, didn't it? <laughs> I know. Well, I feel bad for the guy because everyone was assuming he was like running to the bathroom. But I don't know. I mean, like I think a lot of people kind of go with the – the guess of groin, which is like, you know, with a goalie saying it's his groin, you might as well just be saying body injury, sort of the default assumption. But um, it's hard to tell. Like, we're always looking when he walks by whether he's limping, and um, it becomes this weird game of guesses. But I will find out uh, soon enough, I'm sure. Yeah, it's funny. We call a baseball pitcher, he's an arm or a football kicker, he's a leg. We should just call goalies the groin. <laughs> Here's a suggestion for you. Take this to your Grantland editors. After you find out what was wrong with every player at the end of the series, go back and just write game stories for each of the games with the truth about what was actually going on. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I don't think it'll any- be like a... Like Red Badge of Courage. It'll be inflected <laughs> yeah. with tragedy. I don't, I don't know if anyone would read those, but it would be interesting to go back and like actually just change based on the actual information mm-hmm. as opposed to inference and voodoo about what right. was actually instead going like, on. Instead of like, you know, Tyler Johnson is choking in the playoffs. It's like Tyler Johnson's hand made a valiant effort, <laughs> but was stymied by the broken, you know, whatever Met- the name metatarsal. of the handbone is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm going to get a little more philosophical on you. We just uh, finished talking about how the NBA series was perfect almost in terms of drama and entertainment value. Like with this series, with the closeness of the games, um, the fact that there's never been more than a one goal lead, would you say that this is kind of a perfect series or is that is the, the fact that the stars haven't been scoring, is, has there been something missing from these finals? I think what's been missing most is, like, the level of hate isn't there the way it has been in some past years. Um, it might just be that the Bruins-Vancouver series a few years back kind of spoiled us for years to come. But, I mean, that series had had it all. And this series started off with, with potential when Andrew Shaw was accused of biting Victor Hedman. And biting was, was also a, a hallmark of the Vancouver-Boston series. But it's been it's been very respectful, which I'm sure you know many people are happy about. But it is kind of fun when there's a little bit of hate going on, and you know there, there's still potentially two games left for some kind of on and off ice drama. But I do think on the ice, it's been a really fun series. It's been nice to see two teams that value skill and speed um, are being rewarded, because for a while there, I think the NHL is a pretty copycat league, and there was you know, a lot of big bruising grit that was kind of becoming the 
the trendy thing for people to aim for. And if you, when when copycat teams try to do that and they do it badly, it's it's just ugly for everyone. But you know, a team going for skill and, and not quite succeeding, I think we can live with. So it's been a fun series. I think a lot of people love the Chicago Anaheim Western Conference Final, um, which did have a little bit more of the, the bruising nature. But it would be nice if you know Steven Stamkos has a hat trick tonight and they force a game seven and then Kane you know, does his cane things and, and scores an overtime game winner or something like that. Do your cane things. <laughs> All right, Katie, thank you for joining us. And, you know, one of the big stories has been the amount of money that these tickets are going for in the secondary market, just because Chicago hasn't won a cup at home in most people's lifespans. So if you want to use this opportunity at the end of the segment to auction off your press credential, <laughs> <laughs> the floor is yours. I mean, I'm pretty easy. Like, you take me out to a good Chicago meal somewhere, <laughs> I could easily not show up to the game. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this this uh, podcast will come out just a few hours, I think, before um, the opening face-off. So if anybody wants to take, take Katie, Katie out to dinner. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, have fun tonight, Monday night, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. I need to make a correction. I said metatarsal. It's actually metacarpal. <laughs> It all sounded the same to me. It was a body injury. Yep. All right. Take care, Katie. Thanks so much, guys. Have a good one. All right. Time for our last segment of the day. Uh, In an investigation done along with the BBC, ProPublica's David Epstein reported earlier this month that famed American runner and now coach Alberto Salazar, the head of Nike's distance running group, The Oregon Project, pressured athletes to use prescription medications they didn't need to gain a performance benefit and also mailed pills to Olympic silver medalist Galen Rupp in a hollowed-out book, which I think should be legal. Anything that you put in a hollowed-out book, yeah. there should be an exemption. And mm-hmm. a follow-up piece uh, last week... The therapeutic reading exemption. <laughs> uh, Epstein wrote that the BBC uh, and ProPublica have now spoken to 17 athletes and Oregon Project staffers who have described what they feel was inappropriate prescription drug use orchestrated by Salazar including the abuse of thyroid hormone and asthma medication. Joining us now from LaGuardia Airport, where he either works shifts as an air traffic controller or has just landed from a flight, it's a ProPublica reporter and the author of The Sports Gene, David Epstein. How's it going, Dave? It's good. I mean, this is distracting me from air traffic controlling, but that's no biggie. Well, Mike Pesca is co-hosting The View and is also in the air traffic control tower at LaGuardia today, so he can handle that for you during this interview. Unfortunately, I just screwed up David's bag and put it on a flight to Omaha. (laughs) Um, Dave, Alberta Salazar is a fascinating character. Even before this story, he won three straight New York City marathons in the early 80s before burning out as a runner. He then seemed to hit his peak as a coach at the London Olympics a couple years ago. Um, He coached Great Britain's Mo Farah and the United States' Galen Rupp to a 1-2 finish in the 10,000 meters in your piece, you describe him as obsessed, um, Salazar, that is, with pharmacology. And based on your reporting, would you say that was widely known in the track and field world? Or are people shocked because they viewed him as being hyper-ethical or maybe even just normally ethical in a sport where the record book is always getting erased and rewritten with the you know whoever happens to have been caught doping this week? You know, I, I think he had this image of kind of being into gadgetry. So like when one of his runners was making his debut 
at the New York City Marathon. They spent thousands of dollars to ship to New York, and I think they kept it in Nike Town, a, a space cabin cryo chamber, which was basically like this sort of futuristic-looking, I don't know, bathroom stall that would freeze people in an effort to speed up recovery. You know, and he had Galen Rupp would come out wearing this, like, mask that was supposed to reduce allergens when he ran. And so he did gain this reputation for kind of being into gadgetry and, and tons of supplements and things like that. And then I think there started to be kind of some talk about what else might be going on when runners who would go into his program would suddenly be diagnosed as hypothyroid, which is not a common thing for healthy 20 something. And so that sort of started another level of the discussion. And, and thyroid hormone has become, been kind of a hot button issue the last year or two in running as some pro athletes have openly called for it to be banned. And I, I've never experienced in all the doping stories I've written where the athletes are calling for something that isn't banned to be banned because they think it's, it's basically a, a, a form of cheating that's, you know, exploiting a loophole. So there was some, there was a discussion about that aspect of, Salazar's stable. But when he, when he was a runner, it seemed like Salazar did have a reputation, particularly at the end of his career, as someone who you know, admitted to sort of turning to pharmacological aids or experimenting with pharmacological stuff. He took, what, prednisone um, when, when he was very late in his career. In a 1997 article in Sports Illustrated that you quote in one of your stories, they reported that Salazar took Prozac, before running a uh, 54-mile race in South Africa. Yeah, he did. He, he definitely had that reputation for experimenting, and it was widely enough known among his peers. I talked to some of the people who used to race with him in those days, and they said the nickname for him was Albuterol Salazar because he always seemed to know how to get an asthma prescription whenever he needed one. So he, he absolutely had that reputation. Some people kind of see it as just exploiting sort of loopholes in the rules. Like if, if you're using a certain asthma medication that isn't banned, even if you don't need it, do you blame him for that? But as time has gone on, people have blamed him more and more for some of those things. And also there started to be questions if it's gone beyond that. Were the questions first raised by athletes uh, who ran for him, Kara Goucher, husband Adam, is that where this came up? They really were. I mean, they started with athletes who'd gone in and then out of the Oregon project. There's been a pretty pretty steady churn of people uh, going in and out, sometimes fairly quickly. And so they themselves would start to talk to talk about it, you know, what medications they were using or how they were told to take a certain medical test. And then that kind of became little whispers in the running community and turned into, you know, message board threads on Let's Run where people would make sort of all kinds of rumors and accusations. And kind of one of the reasons I, I was interested in doing this story actually was because it's, it's a daily topic of discussion in the running community except all the information is rumors and online forums, you know, nothing that has any facts or that allows people to respond to. Uh, but it was certainly something that was being talked about amongst the athletes. So one of the things that was in- most interesting to me is, um, and you wrote a lot about what stuff works and what stuff doesn't work in your book, The uh, Sports Gene. A lot of the stuff he seems to be recommending his athletes use seems to have no scientific basis behind it. Would you say that that's a fair characterization? I would say that's a fair characterization. I mean, some of the athletes who are no longer in the Oregon Project would send me, like some of them had saved their supplement bottles and labels and things like that. And some of it is just nonsense supplements, basically. You know, and, and it says it seems he's sort of willing to willing to, to try anything. And some of the stuff, there's really no, no proven basis for it to work. What's an example of, of that? So there's a supplement called GH Boost, for example. It's supposed to stimulate your own production 
of growth hormone. And it's basically just a, a typical kind of sham uh, supplement that has everything in the kitchen sink, like every possible herb, some stimulants and all this stuff thrown in and nothing, not a single thing that has anything to do with increasing natural production of growth hormone. It's just marketed, you know, to help you build muscle and libido and things like that. But it hasn't, there's, there's nothing in it that has a shred of scientific evidence. Salazar is, as we said, paid for, funded, and works out of Nike. Are there bigger ramifications for what his program stands for, what it means for a group of athletes and former coaches and scientific advisors to turn publicly on him, and more broadly for the American and, and international running community? Yeah, I, mean, I think he's, he's clearly the most prominent track coach in America and, and the most powerful, and some of that power stems from him being with Nike and in part the face of Nike running. And so there has been a little bit of, you know, I don't know what to call it, like a, a little bit of uprising in a way or, or more strident criticism of Nike itself. For example, Salazar's protests got two athletes at the U.S. Indoor National Championships last year temporarily disqualified. Basically, he was in a judge's area where he wasn't supposed to be and getting the judges eventually to, to reverse rulings they had made. These athletes were kind of reinstated eventually, but it led to a protest by other pro athletes who, after a race, a bunch of rivals held hands and walked backward down the track in protest of, of what had happened, these disqualifications. And this comes not long after Nike signed a really, really long deal. I can't remember exactly how long it is, 20 years or something like that, to be the exclusive sponsor of the United States track and field. And so they are more powerful in track and field than any other company is in any other sport that I can think of. And so, you know, people have really started to associate Salazar with, with the power of Nike as well. And I think there's an insidiousness to this if the allegations are true and there's just so much evidence that at least some degree of chicanery was involved. And it's not like athletes pushing themselves to an edge. It seems more like the Eastern European doping programs where this was forced on them. And the fact that you see so many athletes or at least a few athletes themselves, especially on the record like the Gauchers, but a bunch of other people off the record saying they think it was improper, shows that like it just very disturbing from uh, the power dynamic, the coaches dictating that the athletes uh, go this route. Can I, and I'll, let me interject one thing. I think that that's a very astute comment about the, you know, comparison to East German style doping in one sense. On the other sense, it's the exact opposite, right? Because that was mega dosing those athletes to get an enormous performance benefit. And in this case, it's either kind of pseudoscience quackery that does nothing, or it's micro dosing of things that are known to work, but it's titrated to such a degree that you're not going to get an enormous East German style benefit. And right? let me interject a third thing, which is that when it comes to the sort of Svengali coach, you see this in professional team sports too, where athletes walk into training rooms and the doctor says, yeah, you should take the tour at all. And they just drop their pants and stick their butt cheek out. I mean, this is, this is how sports work. There is a trust level that builds up between athlete and coach where athletes want to perform at the highest level and they believe what they're told. Yeah. I mean, personally, I would not relate Salazar to, to East German doping. I mean, a lot of the allegations relating to Salazar that athletes have made or that we've reported have been things that are technically legal in the sport, maybe not legal in medicine, 
So people have different opinions about it. If he's just sort of pushing the line right up to the line, um, or if he's if there's something more nefarious going on in that. But but absolutely to the point about Toradol, the typical healthcare relationship completely disappears in sports. Like even if, forget track and field. Like you think about something like football, of course, right? If if I went and skateboarded into a wall and asked my doctor to give me something to allow me to skateboard into a wall again, they'd say, yeah, right. But then you go into some locker rooms, and that's exactly what's happening. But I don't understand why it's not the doctor's place to say, you can do what you want, you're an adult, but I'm not going to facilitate it. All right, Dave, last question. In the story, there's a lot of evidence that Galen Rupp is basically used as a guinea pig, a pincushion. He's tried everything, been given everything. Um, But there's a line in the first story saying that none of the former Oregon Project athletes and employees who spoke with uh, ProPublica and the BBC implicated Mo Farah in any inappropriate drug use. These are the guys, Farah and Rupp, who finished 1-2 in the Olympics. I don't want you to say anything that you're not comfortable saying, but it seems a little bit odd that one of those guys would be doing and taking everything, and the other guy would have no involvement in anything to do with um, the Salazar program. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, all, all I can really say about it is that if I had heard something that you know I, I could verify, I, I would have printed it, and I, and I just didn't. It was as simple as that. All right, Dave, thank you uh, very much. Great reporting on this, and we will be uh, looking out for further updates. Thanks very much for having me. David Epstein is a reporter for ProPublica and the author of the book, The Sports Gene. Now it is time for the afterballs, and there are a lot of fun supplements to choose from in this Alberto uh, Salazar story. And I just recommend to any kids listening out there, just take all the supplements that you can. You never know what might work, what might not work. Just, you know, experiment. Um, one of the ones that is mentioned is L-carnitine. can be found in powder and pill form on the shelves of any GNC. And the guy, uh, Magnus, who is the whistleblower in the story, he's mentioned in the lead as being distraught at seeing Rupp and Farah win at the Olympics. He uh, says that he served as a beta tester and was injected with the L-carnitine in order to test if it worked. So if you want to uh, be a guinea pig, just inject yourself with some some L-carnitine. Hang sounds, up and listen. Sounds delicious. Does not dispense medical advice. Please do not take I anything I say L. seriously. I think, some, I think I had some carnitine at a Cuban restaurant once. It's good. Uh, Mike, what's your L-carnitine? Well, I know this isn't a Slate Plus segment, but I am going to make this a Plus Slate segment. We have all these great players getting called up in baseball because clubs think that the clock has ticked long enough and they can control their guys. Byron Buxton of the Twins. I saw I saw Carlos Correa hit his first ever home run. I was at the White Sox game when the Astros young shortstop, who could be the next Derek Jeter. Sure, why not? Why not call him the next Derek Jeter? I don't know. I'm going to temper expectations and say he could become the next Nomar Garcia-Para. But forget these comps. We need phrases. Now, when a guy plays for a little bit and establishes himself, you just say, Chris Bryan, he's showing that he's uh, amazing at the plate. Or or Joey Gallo of the uh, Rangers, he's played 11 games, has four home runs already. Then you start talking about actual achievements. But until they've achieved every, anything, you get phrases like, Baseball America describing Korea as a plus hitter with plus raw power. You got uh, Lindor on the uh, Cleveland Indians is said to not only possess a high floor and upside, he has plus defense, according to ESPN. 
ESPN. His the scouting book or scoutingbook.com says his glove is pretty shiny and his base running <laughs> smarts and in, instincts are already several years ahead of his age bracket. Okay, no use of the But how is hmm? he yeah, but how is he as a fielder? But how is he as a fielder? Exactly. So if you want a gold glove, start off with a shiny glove. It's only two steps away. Buxton of the Twins. A lot of pluses there. Buxton has every tool imaginable. (laughs) Speed, raw power potential, a cannon arm, a plus hit tool, and tremendous defensive instincts. The plus hit tool shows up a lot when talking about these guys. We heard that Buxton can flat out rip at the plate with plus projections on both the hit and power tools, making him a legit five-tool talent. Talent with Mastodon playing in a small club level volume and intensity pumping from his skill set. <laughs> Sir, you have intensity pumping from your skill set. He's got plus Buxton. sensitivity too. He's an excellent boyfriend. Buxton, because of his speed and bat control, is going to be a high above average hitter. But if he could add plus game power to his resume, he could blossom into the best all-around players in the game. He has at least double plus grades on his defensive package. Oh, my God. (laughs) That seems like a burden. But if you want to go into the world of pluses that would rival an arithmetic textbook, I give you the website BaseballDraftReport.com, where they they claim to be obsessively following the MLB draft since 2009. They rate 500 prospects, the big 500, in the 2015 MLB draft. Let's go right now to Vanderbilt middle infielder Dansby Swanson, a plus athlete with above average to plus speeds, should be average or better at either spot, above to plus at second, a tick below at short. Above average or better hit tool could be plus. Brendan Rogers, shortstop out of Florida, has plus bat speed. Above average to plus power, plus raw, above average to plus arm. A comparison to J.J. Hardy or Troy Tulowitzki, meaning plus bat speed, plus raw power, plus glove, plus arm strength, plus instincts. I want plus instincts. Now, if a guy is good but not great, you know what they say? They say he flashes plus, like this uh, left-hander out of Illinois. He flashes a plus slider. He flashes a plus curveball. He has easy plus upside. So you're either plus, 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 you flash plus, or you have plus upside. Maybe you can... Flash plus plus. Yes. UC Santa Barbara pitcher Dylan Tate flashes plus plus. (laughs) Colby Allard flashes plus to plus plus. (laughs) plus 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 on this one page rating the big 500 if you add up all the pluses there are 587 uses of the word plus to describe the potential class of i don't know 2018 are there any minuses let's look (laughs) there is not one minus (laughs) it's the lake wobegon of baseball Everybody's plus plus, or at least flashes plus or suggestive of easy plus. I flash a potential plus plus hit tool. (laughs) (laughs) Someone's got to use that on their OKCupid profile. (laughs) Uh, That's great. Plus plus after ball, Mike. Stefan, what is your L carnitine? The first Women's World Cup was held way back in 1991, a mere 61 years after the first Men's World Cup. But women have been playing football longer than that. David Goldblatt's book, The Ball is Round, posits that women played some of the many variants of global folk football in Native North America, the Japanese Medieval Court, and English Shrove Tuesday games. But association football excluded women, and early games were renegade affairs, and not, as you might guess, received very well. A 
Scottish newspaper, Bell's Life, reported that the first recorded game in 1881 in Edinburgh was of the most primitive order and, in conclusion, a humiliating spectacle. Scottish sport commented, great amusement was delivered to the spectators by the low-alarmed shrieks of the players when the goals were in danger. In 1894, a middle-class activist calling herself Nettie Honeyball placed an ad in a London newspaper seeking members for her new British ladies football club. About 30 replied they were coached twice a week by a Tottenham Hotspur player. According to Honeyball, organizing the club, backed by an aristocrat named Lady Florence Dixie, was as much a political statement as an athletic one. I founded the association, she told the Daily Sketch, with the fixed resolve of proving to the world that women are not the ornamental and useless creatures men have pictured. I must confess my convictions on all matters where the sexes are so widely divided are all on the side of emancipation. The club's first game was played in March 1895 at Nightingale Lane Ground, Crouch End, in London. 10,000 people reportedly showed up. North London beat South London 7-1. to The Daily Sketch was not impressed. The first few minutes were sufficient to show that football by women, if the British ladies be taken as a criterion, is totally out of the question. The Jarrow Express was similarly dismissive. The laughter was easy and the amusement was rather coarse, but these are waning delights and we shall be surprised if a second display wins even so equivocal a success as the first. Honeyball and the women hit the road. Reporters ridiculed the quality of play and obsessed about the players' costumes, red and blue jerseys and skirts over knickers and shoes with heels. Perhaps it was an accident, but it was a curious fact that the wearers of the red costumes were mostly brunettes, while several of the blue jerseyed players were blondes, one game story reported. The ladies, no doubt, knew what color best suited them, and certain it was that they appeared to the best advantage. Thousands of fans turned out at games that season. In the fall, though, the novelty was wearing off. Off, and there was a schism. Honeyball apparently was booted and set up a rival club. So there were two teams calling themselves the original lady footballers, playing opponents with names like the Lothian Lasses and the Preston Arabs, which was a men's team. And there was trash talk. The new head of the first club described Honeyball's players as, quote, poor, emaciated-looking creatures who ought to be brought under the notice of the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Over three seasons... Burn! I know. Over three seasons, enthusiasm waned and the number of games declined. Then the FA, the Football Association, started cracking down on women's teams. But women's soccer became a huge hit in Britain during World War I until the USA-China World Cup final in Pasadena in 1999. The largest attendance at a women's game was 53,000 in Liverpool in 1920. One year after that, the FA, concerned about the threat to the men's game, banned women's football on member grounds, effectively killing it. The ban endured for 50 years. So who, who was Nettie Honeyball? Though Honeyball wasn't an entirely uncommon surname, women soccer historians have found no birth records for a Nettie in the late 19th century in London. There was, however, a Nellie Honeyball, whose name appeared in an ad for players and in a write-up about a game. And there was a Janetta born around the same time. But a 2012 Scottish Museum exhibition and the 2013 BBC documentary, The Honeyballers, says that Honeyball was, in fact, an Irish woman named Mary Hudson. If Honeyball's name was indeed a pseudonym, it was pretty great. Net Honeyball. And if forming her club was a subversive act advocating women's rights in Victorian England, it was an effective one because here we are 120 years later. England's World Cup team is nicknamed the Three Lionesses. It should definitely be changed to the Honeyballs.
I don't know if that's... Do you think that'd be a good name? I don't know if that's a real person. You think it's Mary Hudson? Honeyball. Here comes Honeyball Ball. Seems a little on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> I like how the, the writer, though, was willing to concede that the women chose their uniform colors appropriately. Appropriately, I thought, yeah. I thought that was very progressive. Very progressive. Victorian England. Yeah. Josh, what's your L carnitine? The best story in sports right now, except for all of the other stories that are probably better, <laughs> is that of Pat Vendetti, who just made it to the major leagues as a switch pitcher, meaning he can throw with both arms. Mm-hmm. Just Not to at clarify, the same time. Not as the Oakland paper called him, amphibious. East Oregonian. Oakland uh, paper was blameless. Yes. Um, Vendetti had a 2.37 career ERA in the minor leagues and struck out 10 batters per nine innings but nevertheless was not called up to the majors for eight years due to doubts that his parlor trick would work at the big league level. I've got to stop here because obviously the listeners are going to be wondering about how Vendetti's skills rank with each arm. Mike, how's Vendetti's arm tool, right arm he flashed, and left arm? He flashes plus plus on the left. <laughs> he has plus 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 on the right, but his glove, just from a glove maker standpoint, <laughs> is plus plus multiplied by plus. <laughs> shiny too. Yeah, shiny glove. Okay, so despite all of those pluses, I think there are at least 12, he was never called up. He was in the Yankees organization for seven years. That um, organization has no clue what it's doing. Just complete... Someday they'll win a world championship. Yeah, complete garbage. Just a garbage barge of an organization. Um, but the, the money ball in Oakland A's, they signed him up in November, called him up to the majors 10 days ago. So far, he's pitched five and two-thirds scoreless innings, one and two-thirds righty, three and two-thirds lefty allowing just one hit and striking out four. The sad news is that Vendetti is now on the disabled list with a strained right shoulder, minus, minus Minus, right shoulder. shoulder. Leads to the obvious question of what the point of a switch pitcher is if he has to go on the DL when he still has one healthy arm. Yeah. Um, But that's actually not what I wanted to address in this after ball. We'll leave leave that as a uh, discussion point for uh, the hang up up and listen uh, book clubs around the country. What I want to address uh, is the conundrum that Vendetti, the switch pitcher, created when he first took the mound as a professional player. Um, That is what happens when a switch pitcher faces a switch hitter. So here's the major league rule 8.01F for ambidextrous pitchers. There is a rule in the rule book. A pitcher must indicate visually to the umpire in chief the batter, and any runners, the hand with which he intends to pitch, which may be done by wearing his glove on the other hand while touching the pitcher's plate. The pitcher is not permitted to pitch with the other hand until the batter is retired, the batter becomes a runner, the inning ends, the batter is substituted for by a pinch hitter, or the pitcher incurs an injury. So the terms there are pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Pitcher must establish which hand he's throwing with. Then the hitter By putting on his glove. By putting on his glove. Then the hitter establishes which way he's hitting. So if Fendetti declares he's throwing with his left, then a switch hitter would likely bat right-handed to get the platoon advantage, and that's simple and logical (laughs) enough. But this rule about ambidextrous pitchers did not exist in the rule book pre-Pat Fendetti, pre-PV. So it was only established after the switch pitcher was with the Staten Island Yankees. He faced... The Brooklyn Cyclones switch hitter Ralph Henriquez in a single A game in 2008. There were no rules. It was just total switch pitcher anarchy. on switch hitter anarchy. Thankfully, this encounter is on YouTube, and our producer Mike Volo is going to cue that up for us right now. 
Enrique's coming up as a lefty, and this is what I was hoping. Will he now switch the glove? He did already. He knew who was on deck. We might be able to see a, a pickoff move now. <laughs> this is great. I can just, you talked about somebody toying around with it, nice but I can just never remember anything like this. Yeah, yeah, Daddy is looking confused. Enrique's looking confused. Now I'm confused. Cyclone's also a nice cyclone across the jersey there. Looks like the roller coaster. Grounded the short twice and struck out. Enriquez is asking the umpire, if I come up here and he had his glove on the other hand, doesn't he have to pitch like that? Everybody is standing. Catcher, umpire, batter, pitcher. And four change his glove during the at-bat. And four fouls are now. And then he just grabbed his crotch with his right hand. He's asking. This is ambidextrous on crotch grabbing, from what I understand. But it was right hand to left nut. He's got his glove on his left hand. When he was growing up in Nebraska. He's switching. We got got to do this. How about this? Did he change sides again? He switched sides again. And now he's I've never seen anything like it. So the best part the best part of this clip is that the batter changes his shin guard, which leg it's protecting every time he switches sides of the plate. Now this is getting a little bit ridiculous, is it not? I mean, how many times can he do this? And the new equipment rules in Major League Baseball are because of this bat at bat as well. So the announcers, this is the announcers watching, waiting for Godot. Like they were waiting for a few minutes and it was funny. But this is going to go on for an hour? It's starting to take on a little more serious tone. Serious Now, Now they've inconvenienced us. I mean, this is possibly the last at bat of the game and it could be the most entertaining at bat of the game. What was ultimately declared was not what the rule ended up being. Um, the umpire ordered the switch hitter, Henriquez, to go into the box as a right-handed batter, mm -hmm. and that gave Vendetti the advantage. He was um, then allowed to uh, pitch right-handed, and he struck out the batter. So what it ended up being was that the pitcher had to declare first, giving the batter the platoon advantage. So I don't know why, uh, why they ended up just... Uh, Giving. They let Vendetti take some warm-up pitches before, after like a minute six here. Do you want to know what the answer really needs to be? Yes, I do. It should be if the pitcher doesn't wear a glove, he could do it from either side. <laughs> but if he does wear a glove, you have to be able to see that piece of equipment. And if it's a lefty glove or a righty glove, can't be changing his glove. Well, the glove that he has allows him to put it on both hands. You're saying, yeah, that... I know, but he'd have to change his glove. Otherwise, he could get into pretty much the same stance. <laughs> what if and he then could... once he breaks into it, that's just part of his motion? Why... What if he wears Left... two gloves? But left-handedness, there's nothing in the rule book about left-handedness and right-handedness, right? So you go into your motion, you go into your motion. But equipment is in the rule book. Whereas in the rule book is a batter going into the batter's box. A batter can't leave the batter's box without permission of the ump. So if the ump says play ball and the pitcher is ready to deliver, the batter can't get out of the batter's box. Are you allowed? So what he needs to do is you put your glove on the right hand. Is he allowed to throw the ball with his glove? Because that would really like highlight, <laughs> yeah, or f like the flip from second base, yeah. But tell me why, f just for, as a logical thing, <laughs> tell me why the the only thing in the rule book beforehand 
dealing with this situation is batters in the batter's box has to ask the ump for timeout to get out of the batter's box. So once the batter's in the batter's box and once the pitcher's ready to go, I don't see why it should be on the pitcher to have to declare beforehand, but for the piece of equipment. That would be my rule. If he's mm-hmm. barehanded, he could do. He could pitch from either side. What happened when he was in college? Certainly there were switch hitters in college. It was a time of experimentation. <laughs> Switch pitcher until graduation. What about Little yeah. League? What happened right. in Little League? <laughs> we'd, we'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Emma Zayner. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.